Today's show is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash Dan Carlin for a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. He's Dan Carlin, and this is Common Sense. I know many of you want me to talk about the election, but I have to be honest with you. Like many of you, I find the whole thing depressing. And everybody gets mad at me, as you might expect, because I don't pick sides because I don't like any of them, which seems to be the majority position for most Americans right now. So maybe in that sense, I'm just a follower. But with Hillary Clinton, we have the champion of the establishment running. So everything we talk about when we talk about corruption in government or uh, she's a neoconservative, basically, I mean, all these things that we have problems with, Hillary Clinton is the poster child for those. So when we talk sometimes when we use that metaphor about the ship of state heading towards an iceberg, Hillary Clinton is not the person to steer us away from the iceberg. She's one of the main types of people in this system who for more than 20 years has been setting the course. She steered toward the iceberg. When you watch, there's something about her where she is so suspicious of everything. And maybe rightly so. She's been hounded by, you know, opposition since the days when her husband was the governor of Arkansas that she is habitually almost Nixonian about things and it will catch up with her and it will catch up with her if she becomes president because the Republicans will investigate her for, you know, 90% of stuff that never happened is not real and 10% of stuff that might be and she's going to act in a way that gets her in trouble. The political system and the ability to destroy your political opponents through the politics of scandal will work very well on her. And to believe that that won't happen, you would have to believe that the, Repu- that the Republican opposition would act differently than they always have and that they already are. So as the old saying goes, if current trends continue and if Hillary Clinton becomes president, all those women who are so excited about having the first female president, and I would be excited about that myself, actually, the father of two girls, my girls ask me, difficult to answer questions along those lines all the time, I doubt she's going to be the poster child you're looking for in the long run. And then there's the other guy who is, who defies description, really. And in the last show, I think it was, it's so long ago, I can't remember a thousand apologies, ladies and gentlemen, but the good news is I've been getting a ton done on the history show. And so whenever you don't hear me doing some work over here, I'm probably doing work over there. But said some things about Trump in the last show, which were totally honest. And, you know, the, the Trumpites got all angry with me. But that's how it's going to be, folks. And, and the, the one critique that's so funny is the one that suggested that because for 25 years I've been saying I want an outsider who's going to come in and upset the system and blah, 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 that I have to be a Trump supporter. As though it doesn't matter who shows up at your door representing that figure, you are pledged to vote for them regardless. Well, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. He's one of the strangest candidates I've ever seen. I don't think I'm out of line here saying the guy is a narcissist. I think that's on display for everyone. And I mean, on on a scale of one to 10, he's an 11 narcissist, because I think a lot of these politicians fall into the narcissism category somewhere on the spectrum. And I don't think he's believable. And I'm tempted to believe what others have said, that maybe he doesn't even look like he really wants the job. Wouldn't it be the greatest political story in all American history if a guy got this far in the electoral campaign when he really didn't want the job, that he ran for subsidiary reasons? I don't know if any of that's true, but it's it's interesting to wonder about. I happen to believe that Hillary Clinton loses to almost any candidate you could think of if they're not, I mean, Donald Trump. He's, he's an amazingly 
polarizing figure in a way. Like I said, I think I think standard operating procedure candidates crush Hillary Clinton because of her unpopularity. So this is a, a depressing election for yours truly because I seemingly get what I want and I get it like a, a weird sort of twisty way. I think I'm getting that birthday cake and it's loaded with nails. Nonetheless, uh, so I'm not talking about it because it doesn't matter at this point for me. Um, neither one of those people are going to solve my problems. Now, on a different front, though, there was something interesting going on that I think is worth talking about, and it dovetails into what I consider to be the larger issues than who the president of the United States may be, you know, next January. And I guess you could say, bottom line, it revolves around information, or right? back in my more protesty, righteous, self-righteous heyday, I probably would have said, instead of information, I would have put a spin on it and said truth. When I was about 20, I wrote a piece, and it was never published, which, you know, I'm grateful for now. But I had talked to, I think I called it the death of objective truth. And at the time, and this was probably 1985 or something, you know, I was talking about how once upon a time, there was certain agreed upon facts. And, and upon those facts, you could then build an argument. And when you had an argument with somebody else about, you know, which way the country should turn or this or that political event, you wouldn't be arguing about the base level facts. There would be an understanding and agreement on that. And you can have the arguments now on the merit of the specific case. So you're not going back and arguing, well, I don't even believe that you're right about your basic assumptions. Well, the reason I'm glad that wasn't published 20 years ago is I think an older, wiser, more cynical version of me today realizes that there never was anything like objective truth. I think that's a 20-year-old's fantasy. Nonetheless, I do find myself in positions all the time now. Well, for a long time. But, but I know many of you are in the same boat. I'm not talking to the general public on this show. We used to have a saying. It's a little, it's a little insulting, so I apologize if... If it was, but, but very early on, one of the slogans we use for this show is that if the show is too smart for you, it's not our fault. And we've never dumbed the show down, you know, for a common denominator. I figure that it's an unserved audience if you're talking about things reasonably, you know, at a high level. And I think we do things at a reasonably high level. So you folks are not really my target audience when I say that I find sort of a certain jealousy in my mother-in-law's book clubs. Because she'll go to these book clubs, and they're popular. Uh, uh, um, women like these things, and especially, you know, moms and, and whatnot. And they'll join these book clubs, and they'll all decide, you know, we're going to read this book, and then when we finish it, we'll all get together over coffee, and we'll talk about the book. And the reason I'm jealous about it is because, well, they've all read the same book. Nobody's going to argue about what happened to the main character and all these things. You can talk about what you think above and beyond you know, the events themselves, right? We all agree that this happened. Now, what do we think about it? It's the what do we think about it part that is the really meaty, fruitful part of a political discussion, not the arguing over the basic facts. Back in debating class, that was considered a debate technique for the person that couldn't win the argument. Can't win the argument? Question the sources. Divert the entire affair so you're not talking about the thing you can't win. You're now talking about where this person got their information from, Right. We went to the book club meeting and I read this book and you read that one. Doesn't make for a very interesting conversation about what we thought, right? So I find myself jealous that we all haven't read the same books. Because I'll have discussions with people about things and I can't get to square one because we don't know the same things, if that makes sense. 
you know, you, you want to explain a certain reality, but they don't know about that reality. And so you, you, you find yourself having a discussion about, well, um, this happened back here and you blah, blah, blah. And in other words, you know, 10 minutes into it, you realize you're not discussing the issue that you wanted to discuss at all. You're trying to find a meaningful point of agreement at a very earlier level, a factual level. I mean, case in point, what we're talking about essentially is information, right? Truth, as I would have said as a 20-year-old. The reason this is so important is because without it, you are not having the right discussion. I mean, in the United States today, I venture a guess that we have never, ever in our history talked more often with more people involved in the discussion of politics ever. I mean, we have millions and millions of people who tune into political radio and tell, I mean, it's huge, right? Lots of people talking about it. But when you look at the discussion, so much of it is nonsense and the discussion about the things that aren't really happening or, or have no basis or, fa I mean, it's as though the people talking about them were born yesterday and have no sense of what came before. So you can't even have a conversation because we don't even know the same things. And it's immensely frustrating. And it boils down to, you know, something that we've talked about on this program a lot, because, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to trying to find at least what appear to be, to me, root causes of things, which is why I think the show gets boring at times, because I think when you factor things down to root causes, you end up with four to eight root causes, and they're the same ones that you could factor almost anything down to. One of them is information, though. In a free society, and I say this a lot because, folks, free societies exist on a spectrum, too. And you can say today, we still live in a free society, but are we the same number on the dial of a free society as we were 30 or 40 years ago? If a higher number denotes a more free society, a more free and open society where the people are more involved in the decision-making and the government somehow adopts policies that are somehow connected to what the people want, I bet you could make a case that we were an, an eight on a scale of 10 back when I was growing up, and we're a four now. Still free societies, but we're down four notches. I call that a net negative. Depends on who you ask, though. I've talked to people who say, yes, 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 it's a negative, but, but it was forced on us by conditions. And we all know what those conditions might be. Let me change the subject a little bit, but not really. If you worked in a private company, which for reasons of its own had decided that sometimes it was okay for you to keep things secret from your boss. I couldn't think of any good examples, but maybe a little plausible deniability at the top might, might, might be one of them. So maybe there's this rule in the company that you could stamp something secret and your boss would not be allowed to look at it, but it was understood that, you know, it was for the good of the company. How long could a policy like that be in effect? And how many people could be working under it before people started misusing it? How tempting would it be if you screwed up a fireable offense, would it be to simply, you know, look, if I just stamp this with the secret label, my boss will never even know about it and I'll never get in trouble. That's human nature at a certain point, isn't it? Now, many of you understand, and many of you understand better than I do, that there are certain almost laws of nature when it comes to vast bureaucracies. It's one of the problems conservatives who who scream about big government all the time, have with big government is that it begins to fall into these patterns of no matter how well-meaning a government may be, these bureaucracies have certain 
almost gravitational Newtonian laws that start to enact themselves once it becomes large enough. And one of them has to do with the desire to protect itself. I mean, there was a wonderful slip, by the way, in the recent political discussions where they were asking a top general about the danger of Donald Trump getting elected. And what if he ordered the government to do this or ordered the government to do that? You know, outrageous things. Would the orders be carried out? And the general said he kind of laughed and said, don't worry. He said the vast bureaucracy has a way of not following through with orders they don't like. Well, certainly that doesn't just apply to the unusual occurrence of when you might elect a Donald Trump. It applies all the time. I mean, I'll tell you something. When I went to that CENTCOM meeting a few years ago, and I'm sorry, sometimes I talk about that a lot. I'm sure for you people that have listened for years, but there were some eye-opening things at that. And one of them was one of the people at the meeting, you know, was just us around a table with a bunch of military people, was a guy who I believe, I'm going from memory here, but, but he was one of these bureaucracy guys. And he'd been at the job for 25 years and he oversaw like 75,000 people or some unbelievable number of people. And you got this impression that this is the guy who knows where everything is. Elected officials may come and go and may not. But when you need this, that or the other thing, you got to go to a guy like this who doesn't change whether a Republican's elected or a Democrat's elected. He's just there. And if he doesn't like something he's ordered to do, how much power does he have to just sort of, instead of grease the wheels, do the opposite? Just sort of slow things down to a point where by the time maybe something starts to happen, the guy who ordered him to do it's out of office. Well, the bureaucracy has ways of protecting itself, too. And, and one of them has to do with information and what you're allowed to know. What I would have said at 20 years old was the truth. If you don't know what's going on, how can you form an accurate worldview? I have discussions with people about politics all the time who simply don't know what's going on. They don't know what's happened 10 years ago. They haven't read the same books I've read. Now, am I reading the right books? I think that's a legitimate question. Although, you know, I read a lot of stuff. The point is I read a lot of stuff about what goes on behind the scenes. And it's funny because... It blends it blends into a territory that a lot of conspiracy theory people like, because when you start to talk about secret things, you're you're into that dark world where now all kinds of accusations can be made about all kinds of things. You know, the United States is sterilizing whole populations in Asia. I mean, you know, you can get you, the rabbit hole goes deeply. Right. But when you're talking about secret things, you're operating in the same territory with some of these people who almost take it to such absurd lengths that they discredit the whole thing. I once heard a guy say that one of the most profound things I'd ever heard about this. He says, if you really wanted to discredit information that comes, you know, via these secret sources or whatnot, the best thing to do would be to create some really, really wild conspiracy theorists who would essentially discredit the whole thing. How's that for a conspiracy theory? Conspiracy theorists are themselves disinformation spreaders. You like that, Ben? You are a disinformation spreader, Ben. That excuse for where you were yesterday, that's a classic piece of disinformation, if I've ever heard one. Ben himself is a piece of disinformation, as many of you know. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll give you a perfect example. You know how we got in the Vietnam War officially, don't you? In 1964, we were already in Vietnam with, with so many advisors that it might as well have been a small military force. 
John F. Kennedy had recently been assassinated. His vice president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, took over. And in 1964, a U.S. destroyer was attacked, or so we were told. This followed another attack soon afterwards. Supposedly, these destroyers were just minding their own business. The president asked for a a resolution that would allow the U.S. to start to do things uh, specifically about that incident and a little bit more. And boom, ipso facto, well, we had the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which legitimizes the whole Vietnam War. And, you know, we lose just north of 58,000 U.S. dead in the war, about 140 to 145,000 wounded or something, and maybe more than a million Vietnamese dead. And the entire thing is a fiasco. Wouldn't you have liked to know that the incident that gave the president the authority to do all this didn't really happen? Or likely didn't happen? Well, you would have had to wait 40 years to get that information. In 2005, the information was made available to the public that they pretty much had put these destroyers where they knew that somebody would come out and attack them because you were right near the other side's coastline. And then the attacks themselves may not have happened at all. The president famously said, for all I know, they're shooting at a whale. How do you get away with that? How do you get away with that? You get away with that by not letting anybody know about it. Was that national security? Was that the president classifying this information because it's for the good of the country, which is what national security is for, right? To protect the country. Or was it there to protect either Lyndon Johnson or to protect a bunch of people in the government that wanted to do something and yet couldn't get the American people to sign on board unless they had a reason that made it look like it was defensive. I talked to a guy once who was in government, high secrecy classification, wouldn't talk about much, but he was okay with broad generalities. And I said, if you had to put a number on what percentage of the stuff that's highly classified, and we've been classifying at a furious pace, folks, if you could chart this on a graph since about 1935, it's shocking. And, it, and, and, and lately, since the war on terror began in, in 2001, 2002, boom. I mean, it just goes straight up. We, we reclassified a bunch of stuff that was open to the public. That's how bad it is. I asked this guy, what percentage of stuff, if you go by the standard that this is national security, it's to protect the country, how much of what's currently classified should be classified? And this conversation happened about five years ago. So bear in mind, these numbers may have changed. He said about 10%. I said, well, what's the rest of it? He goes, everything you can think of. He says, sometimes it's a corporate thing. You know, some, some corporation wants something done, but if people found out about it, they'd be angry. So the best way to not have the hullabaloo erupt in Senator so-and-so's state where he'd take flack for it, you just stamp it classified, boom, done. And there's a wonderful tool called means and method, protection of means and method, that, that is such a wonderful catch-all phrase that you see it used all the time. What that means is, well, even though the information itself seemingly would be the kind of thing the public should know about, it would reveal how we got the information, which gets into deep, deep stuff that you can't know about. So it becomes an umbrella term that allows us to classify other things that would be much harder to make a case that the public don't have a right to know about. Well, yes, of course you have a right to know about that, but if we told you that, you'd know how we knew the information. I mean, you know, can't have that. You see this, by the way, with the whole hullabaloo over things like uh, police use of some of these devices, like the Stingray device, 
where a private company makes the device, then makes the police departments that buy the device sign a confidentiality agreement saying they can't say where they got the device. And if it comes out in court that this device might have been used, the, 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 the district attorneys and the people prosecuting just stop. OK, well, we'll drop the case then. We're not going to tell you where we got the information from. That would reveal everybody at the same time, please together, means and methods, right? Now, the reason that this becomes interesting is if you think secrecy is a huge part of the problem we face in this country because you can hide not just a bunch of stuff that an educated voter needs to know to be an educated voter, but the most important stuff, right? The biggest and most important deals about what your government does with your tax dollars in your name. How valuable is it when somebody makes the information available to you? And this has been something that we've been discussing now for quite some time with the advent of, for example, WikiLeaks, with hackers, with Snowden. I mean, it goes on and on, right? These are people who are releasing information. Many of these people are called traitors by a decent segment of our electorate and a decent segment of our government for releasing information that the government doesn't want released. But how much of this stuff is really about protecting the country? And how much of it would we not have to release if the government wasn't being so obsessive about secrecy? In other words, you have a much greater standing to claim that something like this is out of line if the people are essentially being told as much as the people can be told, right? I mean, first of all, let's understand the mandate, not to go off a sidetrack here, but we do give the government a mandate in a representative system. We tell them that we understand that there's information that if you told us about it, of course, you could trust Dan Carla, but when you told me, there'd be people who found out that you can't trust. So we deputize you with the right to keep this from us. But at the same time, we put an obligation on you that you don't keep stuff from us for fallacious reasons, that you don't keep stuff from us to protect your own misdeeds or to cover your own rear end like that guy at the office that says, I was really out drinking and with prostitutes all day, but I, I'll stamp it with top secret. My boss doesn't need to know that. I mean, what would the temptation be? So this, this implied consent deal between the government and the people who employ it essentially is that you're not going to hide stuff from us we have a right to know, but they do. And you know, I may not have the book club meeting where we've all read the same book, but I don't meet a lot of people anymore that are under the mistaken impression that the government isn't classifying a bunch of stuff you have a right to know. They are classification maniacs on one hand, and on the other hand, they seem uber willing to allow a bunch of private contractors top security clearance that they're not even giving in some cases Congress people. So the system is heavily out of whack. And yet every time somebody essentially goes around the system and breaks the laws, the government freaks out about it. By the way, should be pointed out, and I've had this conversation with many people who will yell and scream at me about it, who do not even realize, they'll say something like, well, you know, guys like uh, all these people who from the NSA who are giving all this information to the public, they should go through the proper channels. They don't realize that most of these people have. We had uh Binny on the show here and, and Binny's been on everybody's show and he's fascinating to talk about a character this is a guy who worked and invented many of these tools that the government's using misusing in his mind and he went through all the proper channels and they punished him in other words the government treats whistleblowers like a lot of private companies do too oh yes we must we would love to hear about any misdeeds you could bring to the table and you bring the misdeeds to the table and they fire you with malice with prejudice with extreme prejudice Nixon would say so 
what does that tell you right there, right? We have these avenues where true patriots can report things that are going wrong in the legal created avenue, and when they do, they get punished. So right there, you can see that the whole system is broken down. So then you can ask yourself, what right do you have to information? I mean, there are great lines by people like James Madison who point out that, you know, without the information, you as a voter are nothing. If you allow somebody to decide what you can and can't know, what truths you're allowed to have and what truths you could be fed that aren't true, you're basically a puppet at that point, right? You could be manipulated. Now, that brings me to kind of what I really wanted to talk about, though, because it's fascinating. So there were a bunch of stories over the last two weeks, and I don't know when you're going to get this, because if there is a Ben, he's on vacation. And we'll see. Aren't you, Ben? You're not even here. Uh, never are here, really. Um, so I don't know if, if by the time you get this, it will be outdated. But I'm fascinated by this. You know, there's always games being played in the in the realm of international relations and spies and secret things. I'm finding this this hacking question as it, as it revolves around the American election and foreign entities fascinating. I mean, for example, I have one story here. And I, you don't even know how to react to this. Um, I'll quote a little of this from you for you because I think it's it's just it, it's wonderful. Um, it's from Bloomberg News. It was posted on their website September 2nd, 2016. The headline is Putin says DNC hacking was a service to the public from the beginning of the piece. Quote. Vladimir Putin said the hacking of thousands of Democratic National Committee emails and documents was a service to the public but denied U.S. accusations that Russia's government had anything to do with it. Quote, this is Putin talking. Listen, does it even matter who hacked this data? Putin said in an interview with the Pacific port city of Vladivostok on Tuesday, the important thing, he said, is the content that was given to the public. End quote. He later said, quote, there's no need to distract the public's attention from the essence of the problem by raising some minor issue connected with the search for who did it, end quote. In other words, what he's saying is all this hullabaloo, that's the third time I've used that word, isn't it? All, all this hullabaloo, that's the fourth time I've used this word, over, you know, whether or not the Russians hacked the data. That's the, the misleading part of the stuff. They're, they're trying to get you to, to not look at the, you know, the, the, the meaning of the thing, the meat of the thing. The meat of the thing is what the hacks show, Right. I have another story, this one from NBC News saying Russians hacked two U.S. voter databases, officials say. That's the headline. Pretty much tells you what, what that story is insinuating. I have another story here. What's this one from? The uh, U.S. edition of the British paper, The Independent. The headline is U.S. intelligent agencies probing Russian attempts to disrupt election with cyber attacks. I have an AP story here from September 5th headline. What if... Hacks, email links could sway election weeks away. And then a Dana Milbank piece from, I believe, the August 30th, 2016 edition of the Washington Post. Do Russians have an October surprise in store, meaning a hack or information or whatnot? In other words, we're having a battle here, ladies and gentlemen, over releasing information about people running for president and the U.S. government to the American people. Which is fascinating. And what Putin is saying, you know, I, truthfully, and, and we'll get into this aspect of the whole thing in a minute with the Russian trolls online and everything else. But, I mean, personally, I think the Russians did do something like this. I think their cyber, they and the Chinese, and I mean, the cyber warfare capabilities of, of our competitors is significant and 
just like our cyber capabilities being used all the time. Let's not kid ourselves. So I think the Russians probably did do this. But what's fascinating is it puts our government in a position of saying, hey, 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 you're not don't give that information to the American people and the Russian government going, why? The American people should have that information. I've said it before. Um, Putin is a fascinating character from a geopolitical chess match perspective. He really is. Because what do you argue? The American people don't have a right to that information. Well, there is an angle you can play on this because, you know, it's, it's sometimes more than just information. The question arises about disinformation. In the Dana Milbank piece, he points out that one of these groups that was providing hacking material that supposedly is showing stuff on, I think it was Hillary Clinton, made the mistake of deciding that they were going to not just release what were purported to be these secret documents and emails that were hacked, but to alter them, to make them look worse, to create falsehoods in them and then release them as though, here's the secret scoop, right? But then made the mistake of releasing both the doctored version and the undoctored version. So they tripped up there. And that way people could look and go, oh, they changed the documents. And what that means, you know, really, if you're if you're one of the politicians who's worried about these hacks, you're just breathing a huge sigh of relief because now you can easily claim whatever comes out. Listen, it's, it's well known. It's been proven that these hackers changed the information. So that horrible thing you found out about me is not true. They, they changed the information. It's a little like the idea, you know, I mentioned earlier about the really radical conspiracy theorists playing the most positive role you could think of in discrediting conspiracies. If we can say, doesn't matter what comes out, we know hackers have a history of altering the information. That pretty much means anything you now get purported to be from WikiLeaks. You have to, in other words, if, if you get something from WikiLeaks, you can easily say, well, it was doctored, and you have to depend on, wait for it, the reputation of WikiLeaks to be something you could say, no, we're WikiLeaks, you can trust us. Isn't that an interesting state of affairs? There's an interesting little dichotomy here, that if you are confronted with a truth problem, for whatever reason, the best thing to do is to muddy the waters. You know, the, the wonderful thing about wargaming and strategies and, and debate classes and all these things is they teach you mechanisms to short-circuit things, right? To short-circuit plans, to short-circuit arguments. The way you short-circuit a mass distribution of information you don't want out there is to muddy it with stuff that calls into question all the information. In other words, some disinformation mixed in with the information can discredit all of it, or at least give the people who want to be able to walk away unscathed an excuse to get away. Case in point, the online, I, I'm using this word wrong. There's a proper word for it. I'm using the word troll. Troll is probably the wrong word, but, but we all know now, and we've all encountered them. That's how ubiquitous they are. These people online who are clearly in the pay of either foreign governments or corporations or entities. They're posing as standard commenters on a news story or a message board or whatever, but they're not. I believe Israel has an almost patriotic style movement where they suggest that, you know, defend the interests of Israel online, and that's a good thing. The Russians pay people. I mean, this has become a battleground, right? And in some cases, it's a completely legitimate effort 
to protect the interests of your country, right? If somebody's slandering your country and putting forward what you think are lies and painful, you know, you, you get on there and defend it. You could say, listen, I'm just a patriotic American defending my country online from these people who are spreading misinformation. Okay, I get it. But then there's other people out there. And folks, the funny thing about it is I'm talking about this now and and Russian people will show up and say that you're totally wrong about this and then might be paid for by the Russian government. But I mean, there's people out there whose job it is to essentially spread disinformation. And the point of the disinformation is to discredit the true stuff by calling into question all of it. That article I wrote 20 years ago about the death of objective truth, as wrong as it was, never sounds more pertinent, though, to the way things are than now because there's a professional effort to do that. And, you know, this is there's a long analog history of this that many of you don't know about, maybe. And this gets back to the idea of, you know, reading the same books. And once again, almost skirts the conspiracy line, but it's completely true. When I was growing up, the CIA was writing books as though they weren't from the CIA and putting them on library bookshelves. That was the analog version of disinformation. Okay. And I'm sure other countries were doing this stuff, too. A lot of the CIA playbook is the same playbook that secret services around the world use and in many cases have used for a long time. What seems new, though, is this ability to use this stuff in real time in ways that could influence the election of another country. Now, again, let's not tease ourselves or fool ourselves that this stuff hasn't always been going on. You don't think the U.S. involves itself in other people's elections and trying to sway the decision one way or the other, and the smaller the country, the more uh, muscular our efforts to sway the decision may be. But, I mean, we've had a lot of the things since the Soviet Union fell in Eastern Europe where there's a lot of tug-of-war over a lot of those border states on Russia's periphery, you know, over elections. They do the same thing. But rarely have the tools been available for example, for the Russian government to directly beam information at the American electorate or the Chinese government to beam. And they're not, Russia and China are not our enemies. And I think people forget that. They are our competitors, maybe, in a geopolitical sense. But we trade with these people. We do business with them all the time. Um, other powerful countries, though, rub against us the wrong way, you know, being the hyper superpower thing we are. And um, we don't like it when they're broadcasting stuff to our people. This information was not easy to get to the American people 40 years ago. You know, you had to read certain newspapers or, you know, in, the, in Eastern Europe, you could listen to the Voice of America, and that was the United States doing their version of it. This direct path, for example, that paid, to just use one country's example, Russian trolls have to the American electorate is unprecedented. So forget about influencing the election in any other way other than advocacy, right? Is it scary enough you have a bunch of foreigners arguing with Americans over who they should vote for and maybe portraying themselves as Americans online while they do it? It's interesting. And let's be honest, I mean, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Not so sure this wouldn't be happening in the reverse sense either in a British election or a French election or a German election. Have a bunch of Americans pretending to be, you know, British folks. Yes, Brexit, we're all for it. Kick the Mexicans out of London. So this is kind of unprecedented stuff. And then you add the funny comment that Trump made 
And once again, you know, I think we all understand, don't we, that part of the charm to Trump is also part of the loose cannon thing is that he obviously isn't scripted and he obviously isn't working from talking points or he's not sticking to them. And he'll say stuff without really fully thinking them through. And that line when he had talked about when did this happen months ago, right, when he'd said that, you know, he, he, he hopes that Putin continues to release information on Hillary Clinton or whatever sort of comment he made that he's taken such flack about encouraging Russian cyber espionage and hacking. Um, it's an interesting position, though, if it was truthful stuff. Then you get into the problem of equal time. I mean, if only one side, though, has the truthful, hidden, nasty behind the scenes stuff released and the other side doesn't. Well, how fair is that? Right. You could argue that, yes, Dan, people should know the information. Hillary should not be able to keep this stuff secret. The Democratic Party shouldn't be able to keep this stuff from the American public. But it's not fair if they're the only ones who have the dirty laundry aired. Right. And it isn't. But that's how the Russians could sway an election. Right. Putin could say the American public should know all this stuff about Hillary. Well, they should know all the stuff about Trump, too. But if he doesn't release that, well, has he just chosen sides? And how is a person in the American public an intelligent, informed member of the electorate, how are you supposed to process that kind of information and use it? In other words, if you look at places where America is vulnerable, and this is good, we're going to widen this out a little bit here, because you know I talk about national security things all the time. Something that, I mean, humbly, I, I, this is something I'm pretty good at. I've worked at it a long time strategic thinking. Um, the United States has made itself virtually invulnerable to certain kinds of damage. Old-fashioned punch-you-in-the-nose damage. Our military now is unlike any other military that's ever existed in terms of how far ahead it is of the rest of the world. And people don't understand that. And I sometimes I make it clear by pointing out that the United States Navy could defeat every other Navy in the world put together easily easily. Now let that sink in for a minute. So there's never been this kind of a, of a hyper power ability to project power and authority and military means around the world as ours has. But there are other vulnerabilities that have not been defended with equal amounts of vigor and money. And for a lot of reasons. I mean, when you're making tanks and airplanes and all that, a lot of people are making a lot of money off that deal. There's a lot of reasons for that to be where you put your emphasis. But the places where we're vulnerable are some of the things we've been talking about on recent shows, although they don't sound like national security crises. I mean, we talked about how more Americans are hating each other in recent shows. And you think to yourself, yes, 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 but that's not the same as a country attacking you and taking you over militarily. No, but if you're – and we're just going to play with Russia now, but I mean you could be any competitor on the world stage you want to be. Iran, I mean take your choice. If you want to destroy the United States and you're looking at the overall challenge – you're not going to say, well, let's build a lot of tanks and go get them. You're going to say, okay, where are they vulnerable? And the places where we're vulnerable are places in the culture and the unity. There are fractures in our society that if made more wide, is that a good way to put it, would lead to very unpredictable and earth-shattering outcomes. If you're in another country and you decided those outcomes were something that would work in your nation's favor, how could you exploit that? How could you hasten the process? How could you speed it up, make it worse, and kick it into high gear? Well, that's sort of the 
inference in a lot of this information coming out about people like Putin, for example, but all kinds of other people sort of sowing the seeds of dissent, looking at where the discontent in the country is and the weaknesses in terms of our unity, shall we say, and trying to make that situation worse. In other words, to create instability and to foster instability. There was a, once upon a time Eisenhower said, and I'm going to murder this quote, but he, he had talked about defense being like an egg and that you could make a really hard shell, which is your tanks and your nuclear weapons and your air force and all that, but that the inside would be soft maybe. And, and, and that's kind of where I, I would think if, you, if this was a game and I was playing a Putin's role or I was China or I was Iran or I was a U.S. competitor or adversary, I mean, there's a soft underbelly here, and it's a soft underbelly that can be exploited because for the first time in human history, all these outside powers and competitors have a direct line to the American people and can influence our election on a one-to-one -one level in message boards and chat rooms on Facebook, uh, you know, through one-to-one -one contact or small group contact, and it's fascinating to watch. And in the same way that if you muddy the waters when it comes to what is information released to the public surreptitiously and disinformation, what do you do about these opportunities to discredit the entire validity of an election, which is where some of these stories lead to? For years now, we've been fed a diet of warnings, again, from what I will call the conspiracy fringe, uh, the people on the far side of the conspiracy line, and then the people who only seem to be there because they talk about things that are secret and everything all the time, about the potential for problems with voting machines, especially these voting machines that leave no paper trail. And I think there's like, is it four? I think maybe four U.S. states still use the ones with no paper trail. And for years, we've had the question about, you know, whether or not you can trust these machines to spit out real results or if they're hackable or they're malleable and if you can trust the results. This story from uh, the U.S. edition of the British paper, The Independent, talks about just that. And, and the idea that instability and disruption is a part of the game and discrediting the basic electoral system is a part of the game. And now before I read you this, I can already hear the Russian trolls out there, and it's a good point, that this itself could be disinformation. So this is how you have to be careful. Once the entire truth water is muddied, shall we say, you can't really trust anything 100%, which is what makes it so particularly galling for people like me who just wish that we were all reading the same books and then having that book club meeting where we could talk about what the books mean rather than arguing what's in them. This is from a September 5th, 2016 edition of the online version of The Independent. The author is Tim Walker. The headline is U.S. intelligence agencies probing Russian attempts to disrupt election with cyber attacks from the beginning of the piece. Quote, U.S. intelligence agencies are investigating Russian attempts to disrupt the November elections with cyber attacks designed to damage American political institutions and foster public distrust in the political process, it has been reported. According to a report by The Washington Post, the FBI, CIA, NSA, and Department of Homeland Security are all involved in the probe of what officials say is a, quote, end quote, ambitious Russian cyber operation to influence both national and local politics in the U.S., end quote. 
Later in the piece, it says, quote, Despite previous allegations of ties between Donald Trump's campaign and the Kremlin, officials said the objective of a Russian operation is not necessarily to sway the presidential election in the Republicans' favor. Rather, they suggested the Russians would like to sow chaos and confusion sufficient to dent American global leadership, disrupting U.S. efforts to spread democracy and Western influence, specifically in Eastern Europe and the countries of the former Soviet Union. The effort is not confined to the U.S., but, quote, seems to be a global campaign, end quote, a congressional aide told The Post, end quote. I love that they're quoting congressional aides. When did those people become national security uh, elites that are worth talking. I mean, the whole thing reeks, I'm, I'm afraid, of of our own intelligence services, fingerprints on it. At the same time, what it's talking about makes sense. Again, from a geopolitical standpoint, if this is a game and you get to play Putin, it's a logical effort to undertake, isn't it? And it would be logical if we were doing the same thing, which we probably are in some respect. But what about Putin's point. Who cares about where it came from? Focus on the information. Let's pretend for a minute, and this is pretend, that we can rule out disinformation. If Putin tells you something about one of the candidates, something that you have a right to know, and you know, I'm a privacy nut. You all know that. And I believe our privacy has been compromised and that it has absolutely no financial value which is essentially why it has no standing in our government. If there was some big moneyed interest out there, you know, giving billions to candidates for privacy, we'd all have tons of it. Um, and when Europe, by the way, tries to assert some level of privacy rights, look how we freak out and, and act as though it will disrupt the entire global communication system if anybody gets any privacy. Okay, enough on that. That's corporation lobbyist money talking right there. But I don't want anybody's email hacked. And I want everybody to have some privacy. The question comes up, though, you know, when is something not really private? We talked about national security in a government sense and when secrets should be secrets, when it's important to protect the country, right? Making a differentiation between something that's, for example, troop movements or how we spy on the Russians or something like that versus, uh oh, we screwed up here and we want to cover our rear end or the Gulf of Tonkin attacks never really happened the way they said it did or any of that kind of stuff, right? How you differentiate between things that the public should have a right to know versus stuff that you're just hiding because it makes you look bad or the people wouldn't support it or it's a mistake versus something where, listen, you can't release this kind of information. Real damage will happen and people will die and you'll be sorry. This is exactly the kind of stuff the American people have deputized us to keep secret. That's three different categories, right? Right now, they're all classified. If Vladimir Putin tells you something about the Hillary Clinton campaign that you should know, what do you think about that? How do you factor that into your thinking? Do you go, first of all, it's probably disinformation because you can't trust it. Dana Milbank's column is just one example that shows that these idiots are changing the facts and then releasing the information. And so you can't believe any of it. You have to just discredit all of it. Or do you say, wow, that's a shocking piece of information that the American people should have known, but the means with which it was gathered and released to the public is untoward and wrong. Therefore, I shall discount the information. It's a little like the exclusionary rule in the U.S. legal tradition, the idea that, yes, 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 that evidence definitely would convict this person, but it was seized illegally, so it's thrown out of court. Not sure how you could do that. Once you found out the fact, you can say, well, I'm not going to pay attention to it, but it's not going away from your brain, is it? 
And then what do you make of the problem, you know, of these uh, ideas that the American people should know this stuff, but they only release it from one side? If the American people should only know the hidden dirt on Hillary Clinton, what does that do for the Donald Trump campaign? So I'm not sure how to process all this. I, I would make the case, though, that this is, to quote the Malcolm X line, the chickens coming home to roost when it comes to overdoing the secrecy. Because the government doesn't have a leg to stand on anymore. They've been caught red-handed. I mean, they reclassify stuff that's been released to the public. It's just so insane right now, the amount of secrecy, that when somebody releases truth, you're, you know, if you're the government, you're left sputtering about means and methods and all the... I mean, at this point, the cat's out of the bag in terms of the American public realizing that there's a whole lot of stuff going on that they're not being told about. And, and of course, you know, being who we are, we tend to break it down in a partisan sense, right? I mean, the liberals out there will blame the Bush-Cheney cabal and, you know, blah, 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 blah Alberto Gonzalez and signing... And then the other side will talk about Obama and Clinton. I mean, we just break it down to partisan levels instead of pointing out the fact that the guy at the CENTCOM meeting, you know, that has the 75,000 people who work under him who's been there 30 years or whatever, that's the government, and he's not partisan at all. But he's not telling us what he knows either. And that's part of the problem. Ye shall know the truth. And it shall set you free. Right? Isn't that the old parable? So where do you get your truth? Who do you believe? How do you filter out the disinformation? What if it comes from somebody who you have a reasonable right to expect is a competitor that would not mind seeing your country brought down a peg? And what if it interferes with, if not the election results themselves, then the public conception of the validity of the results? Donald Trump's already hinted, if I lose, what was it, Pennsylvania? If I lose Pennsylvania, the fix is in or something. Well, that already sows some, you know, public doubt. You throw in some... Russian voting machine tampering allegations, and what does that do? In other words, if you're trying to sow the seeds of discontent in the country and you can get a sizable number of Americans to think that the vote was actually rigged at the ballot box, I mean, what if, what if Putin and his people, who were not involved in this at all, release information showing that U.S. results were tampered with by the government and they faked the whole piece of information? But how many Americans will latch onto that and believe it? We've gone from the death of objective truth that my 20-year-old self penned to the idea that the disinformation is all around us now, in part because it becomes the only way in an era of rampant leaks and seeping out of truths that once upon a time we could have kept hidden, it becomes the only way to mask that. There's an old Churchill line that he said about war, he said, in war the truth is so precious that it should be shielded with a bodyguard of lies. That's what this is, in a sense. And I'm not saying it's intentional. I'm just saying that, that once you need to discredit some of the stuff coming out in this world, the best way to do it is by throwing 
Flash added. You know what Flash is, right? The stuff that they throw out, or in the old days, they used to throw out from the aircraft little bits of aluminum, for example, that would mask the aircraft from radar, right? It sort of, sort of masks the whole thing, obscures the clarity. That's where we are right now. How do you yourself navigate your way to some level of understanding? I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I have my own way, but, you know, as I said earlier, we're not all reading the same books. And that's part of the problem, too. This is also not an indictment of the U.S. government for doing anything that a bunch of these other countries aren't doing. If there's disinformation flash in the cyber realm, there are many countries involved for their own protection and reasons. Everyone would like to obscure the truth a little bit for their own purposes, you know, throwing flash into cyberspace. Now, earlier we used that parable about the truth will set you free. It's worth asking why, right? I mean, how is it connected to making anything better? Well, I would suggest, and I've suggested for a long time, that one of the main reasons that governments like ours keep the public in the dark about this stuff is because the public would not support it or would not stand for it if they knew. And the easiest way to do these things is to just cut the public out of the loop, right? When the Gulf of Tonkin information doesn't fully become public until 2005, well, Lyndon Baines Johnson and company can simply wash their hands of ever having to answer those really tough questions about, now, wait a minute, did this attack that, you know, you used as a reason to launch essentially the ramping up of the Vietnam War, it never happened. Johnson died in the early 70s. So, I mean, that was a very useful tool, right? I would suggest that something like that is an abuse of the trust that we deputized the government with in terms of keeping things from us. That should have been told to us. But if it had been told to us in 1964, Johnson would not have been able to do what he wanted to do. The reason the truth sets you free is because it empowers people to respond in real time to what's going on. What secrecy allows you to do is to take the real-time part of the equation out. The public gets to respond to what really happened a generation later. This is the problem, though, with all of these agencies, from WikiLeaks to the Snowdens to the various intelligence agencies around the world leaking information. They all can have their own purpose. And in the same way that journalists have known forever that the way you write a story can influence the way it's received and, and the reaction of the reader or what have you, viewer, all these outlets understand the same thing. It's not always what you release. It's also what you decide not to release. What sort of narrative are you building? It's a very nuanced thing, and it requires on the electorate's part a degree of sophistication I'm not sure it's even reasonable to expect the general public to have. In a modern 21st century representative democracy, you know, how savvy, I don't want to say smart or ignorant, or but I mean, how savvy does a 21st century voter have to be to grasp the nuances of this stuff. And if they can't, what does that mean? Does that argue? I mean, now you get into the real rabbit hole. Does that argue right there 
for a logical reason to keep this stuff from them in the first place or to delude them in the first place or to lead them by the nose in directions they may not even know is for their own good in the first place. I mean, once you get back to the idea, and we've talked about it before, of a potentially unqualified electorate, what sort of rationalizations, if you were that bureaucrat, 25, 30 years of service that I talked about earlier, what sort of rationalizations does that provide for you? I mean, you could honestly say, listen, the voters don't know Jack. They don't know how to run anything. I've been here 25 years. Let me tell you how things are going to go. Representative democracy or no representative democracy. What's that line from uh, the movie A Few Good Men? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth? Bump that right next to that Churchill phrase that in wartime the truth is so important it must be defended by a bodyguard of lies. We've been telling you about Audible on this program for years. They've been supporting what we do for a long time, and I'm pleased to let you know that they've come out with some features that are worth talking about. You know, I'm a huge fan of the old-time books with the big leather binding and the beautiful interiors and the smell and the whole feel. But in the 21st century, Audible is doing things with audiobooks that you just can't do with the brick-and-mortar type books. I mean, for example, wouldn't you love to be able to just, if you find a, a piece of a book that you like, send that to somebody, a really important or meaningful paragraph or something like that? If you get Audible's app, there's a number of things like that you can do. I mean, for example, they have a send this book feature. So you can share a book from your library with anyone. And if it's their first time accepting a book through the feature, they can listen for free. I like to think of that as the digital equivalent of you read a book and then you handed the book copy to someone else to read. They also have that feature I mentioned a second ago where you can share excerpts and clips from your favorite listens with anyone. They have a really cool feature they call Whisper Sync for Voice, which they describe as the ability to switch back and forth between reading and listening to the audiobook across many devices, including Amazon's Kindle and Echo, without ever losing your place or missing a word. You know, I love brick-and-mortar books, as I call them, but you can't do that with them. An Audible book or offering will work on your iPhone, your iPad, your Android, your Windows phone. You can listen on an iOS device, Amazon Fire tablets. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books, which, of course, I think is very cool. They also have something called a great listen guarantee. If you don't like what you read, you can swap it out for something else. Just for fun, I went and listened to a couple of the versions of the histories of Herodotus that Audible offers. Because, you know, we just finished that whole history series on the Persians. And, and I was doing extensive rereading of Herodotus. But as we said in that show... Herodotus is supposed to have been meant to perform this material live. And so I clicked on one of the samples to hear the narrator. And of course, it's this wonderful British guy. I don't know why they're so good at this, but they are. And he's pronouncing these ancient Greek city-states and these figures. I mean, he made it sound Tolkien-esque. It was wonderful. It added an, an entirely new dimension to Herodotus for me and reminded me that it is meant to be performed live. And it's clear once you hear somebody, read it to you. 
I was actually pretty darn impressed. So go listen to a couple of the versions on Audible right now. Click on the sample and listen to the various ways Herodotus can be performed for you. And if you go to audiblepodcast.com forward slash Dan Carlin and sign up for a free 30-day trial, you'll get a free audiobook along with it. Want to help the podcast? Just buy your Amazon.com products through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com, and it won't cost you a penny more. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. It's about the cost of a cup of coffee. Not a gourmet coffee. That's more like two or three shows. A buck a show. It's all we ask.